Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today, in honor of Melanoma Awareness Month, I'm here with Dr. Shahir Khan, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for joining us today. So my name is Shahir Khan. I'm a medical oncologist here at uh, Columbia University, um, where I work um, you know, within the cutaneous oncology and early phase clinical trial group. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we have a particular focus in trying to build our non-melanoma skin cancer program, uh, particularly um, in patients who have um, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. So by way of background, what are some of the most challenging aspects of treating patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma? That's a great question, I think. Um, and, it, and it gets to a lot of, you know, what, what the overall challenges are in, in this disease. Um, you know, I think there's there's a few challenges, um, and there might be others that 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 others think of as well. But I think the first is the lack of uh, you know accurate epidemiologic data uh, regarding you know how how big of a burden is this disease. Um, you know, we know that uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma is extremely common. Um, you know, we know that in almost all cases, um, it can be successfully treated with local therapies, um, but. By virtue of that, we also don't have great um, uh, data in terms of registries, in terms of databases, as to exactly how many people are developing advanced disease, regionally advanced disease, metastatic disease. And so I think that can make it a little bit difficult to determine, okay, how, how bad is the burden overall um, in, in our patients? Um, uh, you know, most of the data that we have regarding um, how many patients develop advanced disease or who go on to unfortunately pass away from their disease is based off of, you know, claims databases and it's, and it's estimates. And so we have kind of a wide range. Um, and so I think that's, that's one challenge. Um, and I think that leads to the second point also, which is that, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to determine um, which tumor um, is going to be a bad actor, um, especially when, you know, dermatologists or surgeons are resecting so many of these tumors. Um, uh, sometimes in patients, um, you know, there may be multiple tumors at the same time or multiple over the course of a year. Um, sometimes it can be difficult to determine, okay, which one of these is going to be the one that is at highest risk of developing regional or, or distant metastatic disease. Um, and so, you know, we, we do have uh, staging criteria, which uh, seek to standardize that, and they use some, I think, very logical um, uh, criteria, including size and depth of invasion and some of the patterns of the invasion. Um, but we know that that's inexact and that there are patients who may be um, lower on that risk stratification who still go on to develop aggressive disease. And then there are patients who have multiple high risk factors, but then are able to be cured with their primary resection. And so I think um, that's kind of a, a secondary challenge that's been associated with the overall management. Um, and, you know, particularly in patients who develop multiple lesions um, or very frequent lesions, um, you know, the kind of burden, the mental and emotional burden of having uh, to go and get you know, repeated resections and Mohs surgeries um, and uh, to have continuous follow-up every few months with their dermatologists, it can be exhausting. Um, and so I think that's, that's one um, burden as well. And then finally, I think when it comes to, you know, treatment, um, because the, the relative rate of regional or dysmetastatic disease is, is so uncommon, 
Um, it's been difficult to conduct large uh, randomized studies to determine what are the optimal treatments. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the data um, historically that we have regarding treatment options are based on small um, single arm <clears throat> retrospective studies um, or extrapolation from studies done in head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, which we think there are some over um, similarities, but um, you know, they're also unique diseases. And so um, I think those are some of the kind of biggest challenges that, that we have in, in managing um, patients with this illness. Can you give us an overview of semiplumab and pembrolizumab for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and how they compare with other treatments for this disease? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, thankfully, with, with the advent of immune checkpoint agents, um, uh, the treatment landscape for many cancers, um, including cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, has been transformed. Um, you know, uh, semiplumab and, and pembrolizumab are, are both um, monoclonal antibodies uh, directed at PD-1 um, and interrupt the binding to PDL one which normally results um, in inhibition of T-cell function. Um, and, uh, you know, many in the audience will be familiar with these agents and will have used them for, for many different indications. Um, Semiplumab uh, was the first agent to be approved, and it was based off of uh, the results of the Empower, the Phase Two Empower study, um, which was um, performed to assess the response rate of semiplumab in patients um, who had either locally advanced or metastatic um, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. The, there were a couple of different arms within this trial um, that were looking at either locally advanced or metastatic patients, and also looking at two different dosing strategies, either weight-based or flat dose. Um, but overall, um, you know, when looking at the results of this study, you know, we saw um, a, res a response rate of 46% across all of the arms. Um, with complete response rates ranging in the you know 13 to 20 percent um, depending on the arm, um, and not only that, um, you know the proportion of patients who had durable control uh, or durable response was very high, um, and so uh, you know the, the most recent data estimates that uh, the proportion of patients who had ongoing response at one year was 88 percent, um, and although they haven't reached the median um, survival time point, um, the follow-up is still ongoing. At 24 months, um, the estimated overall survival rate was 73%. Um, and so, you know, based off of that kind of landmark data, um, semiplumab was approved for patients who had locally advanced or unresectable, uh, locally advanced unresectable or metastatic disease. Um, pembrolizumab uh, followed shortly thereafter, and that was based off of the Keynote 629 study, um, which um, uh, it included a, a cohort of patients, again, with locally advanced disease and another cohort, which was the larger cohort of patients with recurrent um, or metastatic disease. Um, in the locally advanced cohort, um, the response rate was 50% and approximately 17% had a complete response, um, very similar to the semiblumab data. Um, in the recurrent or metastatic group, um, the response rate was a little bit lower, 35% in that cohort, um, with 10% having a, a complete response. Putting them together, the overall response rate was 40%, um, and um, about 80% continued to have a response at 12 months. 
Um, so it's a little bit hard to compare, um, you know, across these trials, across these drugs. I think, you know, collectively, we think that these agents are very similar. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there may be some, you know, particular um, unique aspects to each of these trials, which can impact uh, the response rates and, and, the, and the data. Um, I think, you know, one thing to note is that in the pembrolizumab study, there were a higher proportion of patients who had received prior lines of therapy. And so that might impact things. Um, but I think, you know, the overall kind of uh, story between both of these agents um, is that um, immune checkpoint agents appear to have excellent um, response rates in this disease. And in patients who do respond, they can have long-standing response, um, sometimes even complete response, even in the metastatic setting. So, obviously, transformational um, data that's um, that's that's really been um, amazing for, for patients who are eligible. Um, uh, you know, uh, having said that, there are patients who were excluded from these studies, and. They, uh, treatment for those patients continues to be an issue, including patients with solid organ transplants um, who are not eligible because of the risk of, of transplant rejection um, associated with these treatments. And so we still need to find um, alternative treatments for those patients and uh, patients who um, don't respond or um, cease to have a response to these agents. You know, when we compare um, these treatments to the historical um, treatment options that we have, namely um, chemotherapies um, like platinum agents, taxanes, antimetabolites, or um, uh, EGFR antibodies like cetuximab, it's, it's honestly hard to compare because so much of the data for, for those agents is off such limited um, trial data, or it's just retrospective or extrapolated, as I mentioned. And so, um, you know, our best guess is that, um, you know, there, there, there are some portion of patients who will respond to those therapies. Um, you know, the, the, the estimates are probably in the 10 to 30% range, but it's unclear what impact on survival we're having with those agents. Um, and in meta-analyses that have been done, um, you know, regardless of which of those agents is used, um, the overall survival is, is not great. Um, and so, um, you know, compared to those historic historical options, you know, this is clearly, I think, um, the, the first line treatment um, and a tremendous improvement upon what we have. Great. Thank you for explaining all that. Are there any adverse events of note that are seen with simiplumab and pembrolizumab and how should they be managed? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, most of the audience will be familiar, um, you know, with, with immune, immunotherapies and the kind of toxicity profile that, that can arise um, associated with these agents. Um, and, and, you know, we know that although they are not, um, they don't have the same toxicities as chemotherapeutic agents, as potentially targeted agents, but that doesn't mean that there, there aren't real toxicities associated with these, with these therapies. Um, you know, in, in the trials that were done, um, most patients did really well. The, the treatments uh, for both simiplumab and pembrolizumab were both quite tolerable. Um, uh, the rate of grade three treatment-related grade three toxicities was low in the, in the range of 10% in both, in both of the studies. Um, and similarly, the, the percentage of patients who had to discontinue treatment because of toxicity was also low, less than 10%. Um, uh, 
Um, and so most of the toxicities that developed were, were low grade, grade one or two. Um, and the overall profile was similar to that, which is seen in you know, many of the other um, trials that have been done in various cancers with immunotherapy agents or single, ther single agent immunotherapy trials. Um, again, that isn't to say that um, immune-related adverse events which develop as a result of this can't be serious um, um, and can't be associated with significant uh, symptom burden and potentially permanent changes um, uh, for, the, for, the, for the patient's care. Um, but generally, um, uh, you know, these are, these are well-tolerated agents, and if they do develop immune-related adverse events, they can be um, alleviated with appropriate strategies, potentially including, you know, systemic uh, steroids um, and tapering over a period of time. Um, you know, the exception is, uh, again, patients who have um, solid organ transplants who, again, are not, were not studied in the trials and theoretically are not eligible um, to receive these, these therapies um, in which the risk is that, you know, we could cause acute allograft rejection. Um, and so um, it still is sometimes used because of the clear benefit that patients um, uh, have, have demonstrated in, in trials and in practice, but there's that significant risk that, that you have to balance um, with regards to the potential benefit versus the risk. To wrap up, do you have any words of advice for members of the cancer care team who are treating patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma? Yeah, no, I mean, I think overall, um, you know, we, we've learned that it's it's really critical to um, to establish a, a strong, cohesive, multidisciplinary team to manage these patients. That includes, um, you know, dermatology, uh, surgery, um, uh, sometimes soft tissue surgeons or general surgeons and head and neck surgeons. Often these these will develop in the head and neck region, radiation oncology, um, medical oncology, and then often, you know, social work and other, other members of the care team as well. You know, patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma frequently have um, significant comorbidities, whether it's lack of access to care, um, so other social barriers, um, or complicated medical histories. Um, and so having a forum to discuss these cases during the diagnostic process while decisions are being made regarding surgery, radiation therapy, um, uh, or systemic therapy, um, you know, I think they can make a tremendous difference. And, you know, thankfully, um, with the development um, and the approval of simumab and permalizumab and these, these immunotherapies that have real um, uh, benefit and potentially long-lasting benefit, um, there are patients um, who are doing really, really well, um, but um, there's there's still a lot of room for improvement, um, and there's a, and thankfully there's a lot of interest as a result um, uh, in in improving the response rates to immunotherapy upfront, um, to developing alternative treatments for patients who aren't candidates for immunotherapy. Um, and then to potentially combining um, different treatment strategies like immunotherapy and potentially EGFR targeted therapy um, to see if we can improve um, the responses for patients who are in that cohort that no longer respond or don't respond to immunotherapy to begin with. Um, and so I think it's, it's great that we have these options. Um, it's great that most patients do well with them. 
Um, but uh, there's a lot of room to grow and, and working together in a kind of multidisciplinary team um, is I think the best way to, to manage these patients. Great, thank you so much for sharing all this advice with us. All right, yeah, thank you so much. Great, that sounded really great, thank you. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah, let me know if, um, if there's anything else I need to do, but uh, yeah, this was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we were probably not I'm not planning to post this one until May because we we're going to um, highlight it for Melanoma Awareness Month. Um, okay. Yeah. So I'll send you um, like a link to the edited video and the transcript and everything. That way you can look it all over before we post. Um, awesome. So in touch with that soon. Um, so yeah, thank you again. And let me know if you have any other questions before then. All right. Of course. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate it too. Take care. Thank you so much for giving us this really great overview today. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com. 